I'm so blessed that you're taking a few moments to watch a message from Transforming Truth Online. Uh, I know it's going to be a blessing to you because anytime we open up God's Word, we're blessed. So my prayer for you is that you hear what's about to come forth, that it is mixed with faith so it'll be a profit to you. And I pray this. I pray that your soul expands. I pray that your spirit is strengthened. I pray that your eyes are enlightened. And I pray the Word of God does exactly what it's been doing for ever since it's been around. That is to draw us closer to the Son of God, who's Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's get into the Word. I want you to join me on your feet in the book of Numbers this morning and chapter uh, number 32. The book of Numbers chapter number 32 for the next however long uh, pleases the Lord. We are going to be just kind of listening to Him during the week. We're not in an official series on Sunday morning. I will be starting a new series this Wednesday night. If you don't come on Wednesday, it's slowed down. It's more in-depth teaching. We still have an amazing time. Frankly, there are, day, there are weeks where Wednesday night's my favorite service of the week. And so if you're not anywhere on Wednesdays, come and join us on Wednesday. But for Sunday mornings right now, we're just going to really, really uh, tarry before the Lord and let Him lead us. This morning, I want to talk to you about what it means to live in the borderlands. Um, and as we go through this text, the first 12 verses of Numbers 32, that's going to make um, more sense to you. And so with your Bible open, or if you didn't bring one, look up on the screen. In the book of Numbers chapter 32, the Bible says, Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. And they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Elielah, Sebem, Nebo, and Beon, or whatever, I don't know how to pronounce any of those, but. <laughs> Verse 4, they said to the fellas, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for, for a possession. Now watch this. Do not take us across the Jordan. But Moses said to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this. When I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land, for when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day, and he swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. You can be seated. This morning's passage is Old Testament history. It's Hebrew history. But that's not my purpose this morning. As a matter of fact, I think this message is as contemporary as the very minute we're standing in right now. And this message is going to touch all of our lives if we will let it. I was praying for the message this morning on the front row, singing next to my son, and as I was praying for an anointing to preach, I distinctly heard the voice of the Father, inwardly, not audibly, saying, I'm going to anoint you to preach. You need to pray for them to have an anointed ear. 
And so the Father's concern this morning is not so much that Jeff delivers a message that's clear, it'll be clear enough, but that you receive it as a message not for the other guy or the other girl. And so we're taught in Scripture that our job as Christians, one of them, is to provoke each other unto love and good works. So I am putting on my provoking hat this morning, and I will provoke the provocable. And if you're not provocable, uh, you're still going to get provoked. And I think for your good and our good as a church family, if we'll respond, great things will happen. In these 12 verses, I want to talk to you about living in the borderlands. And we're going to see through the testimony of three, two tribes, two and one half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. Out of the 12 tribes of Israel, these two tribes, Reuben and Gad, come to Moses with a request as Israel is delivered out of their wilderness wanderings and approaching, moving in to the place of their destiny, the place of promise, the place of blessing, the place where God has said, I have given this to you. You will need to go in and conquer it, but everywhere you walk, that land belongs to you, O Israel. Now go and get it. But in order to get into the land, they first have to cross an obstacle, and that obstacle is the mighty Jordan River. Between where they are and where they need to be, there's got to be an intense crossing And now as they're approaching that, we see that two of the tribes who would later add the half-tribe of Manasseh come to Moses with a request, and that's where my heart is today. They were living, Reuben and Gad were, with a presumption of ease. A presumption of ease. Look at the beginning of verse number 1, and you'll see that these people that are going to come to Moses had been blessed. The Bible says, now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. If you write in your Bible, you take notes in your Bible, just put a dollar sign there. Put three of them there. It's cha-ching. I think that's the Hebrew word there. They have money. When we think of wealth today, we think primarily of what we've got in accounts. We think of homes, houses, cars, and outward things, and those are emblematic of wealth today. But in the agrarian society, in the nomadic life of Israel, to have livestock was to be blessed of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. As a matter of fact, as they had gone through and had some battles prior to entering the promised land, they had just won some victories and as they did they were accumulating the spoil from those victories and Reuben and Gad were blessed to receive a ton of livestock therefore through their faithfulness up to this point to God God had blessed them and they weren't they weren't being chastised for that the the Bible is very clear that as they followed the Lord the Lord was blessing them and even blessing them materially but now watch this as they are approaching the next phase of journeying with Jesus. They're getting close to the Jordan River. And by the way, they don't know how they're going to get across the Jordan. Their their forefathers had gotten across the, the Red Sea, their parents' generation, but they didn't have any mighty promise about what was coming in the Jordan. And so they're looking at an obstacle. They know on the other side of that Jordan River are a lot of the enemy, and they're going to have to fight. So watch what happens after some victories, and as they've been blessed, these people saw an opportunity. In verse number one, it goes on to say, They saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, and behold, that that place was a place for livestock. So the people of God and the of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses, Eleazar, and all the big name guys, they said in verse 4, the land of, that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and watch this, and we've got livestock. So follow me here. 
You're gonna, you're, you're gonna, I'm going to be pedantic with this. I'm going to take you over and over again to make sure you get this. They had come out of the wilderness. 40 years they had learned how not to live in God's best. That's what the wilderness was all about. They were living out year after year for four decades out of God's will because of their parents' generation unbelief. So they had grown up out of God's best. And now God was saying, now I want to take you into my best. And as they approached it, they had to fight Og and Sihon and these other kings, and they had destroyed them. God had really just torn up the enemy. So they were learning what it meant to move from wanderers into warriors, and they were being blessed. But now, after their latest victory, after they were tasting a little bit of the blessing of God, after they were assessing and saying, we have got a ton of livestock and they're moving towards the place of their destiny, here's what happens. They say, you know what? This might actually be good enough. This, this is probably going to suit us and so they get their leaders together, and the leaders get an audience with all of the, the bigwigs, Moses and Eleazar the priest, and they approach them and they say, hey guys, something has occurred to us. God has really blessed us, and my tribe and Gad's tribe, we're doing great, and we've got all this livestock, and how pragmatic is it? We're in a place that's actually perfectly suited for livestock. And so they saw an opportunity. They looked around, and what entered into their heart was the blight that has assailed the people of God for every generation. What is that blight? What is that disease? What is that, that sickening uh, uh, vibe that comes into us? It is that temptation to say, I think I'll settle here. I think this works for me. I think this is good. You say, well, Jeff, what's wrong with that? Well, the problem was twofold. One, they were part of a bigger people. They were two out of 12 tribes, and the people of Israel, as God saw them, were one people. And so in saying so, and we're about to see the details of it, they're pulling themselves away from the people that God has identified themselves with, identified them with. And the second thing was, is they assumed what was good enough for them in the moment after their most recent victory could in no way ever be topped by what God had for them if they would cross over into the unknown. Y'all following me? And so we go down to verse number five. These people had a plan for their lives. They said, and they, they approached this the right way. They had the wrong idea, but how they went about it was the proper channel. They, they said to Moses and Eleazar and the bigwigs, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan." Now, my friends, you and I are redeemed, for the most part, Gentiles. There are a few among us that uh, are, have, have uh, Hebrew blood, but most of us are redeemed. We're saved, and we come from non-Jewish lineage. And so this doesn't mean as much to us as it could if we had a little bit bigger understanding. What God had destined them to do through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, was to put them in a land that he picked that belonged for him. The, uh, Canaan was not a good idea by a human leader. Canaan land, the promised land, was God's idea. It was God's best. It is what God wanted for his people. It isn't something he wanted from his people. It was something he wanted for his people. And so as they were moving towards it, these men said, how about this? We like it here. Moses, don't make us cross the Jordan. This is the idea that occurs to us in a lot of different ways. 
when we are tempted to settle, we decide that we've reached a place that is good enough. It works for us. It, it often happens in late 30s, 40s, 50s, early 60s. Something happens where, where, where in our 20s, we're visionaries. In our 20s, we're zealots. In our 20s, we, we, we believe and want to see God do great things. And, and I, I love to be around young people who haven't learned all the excuses yet. And, and then when we get into our 30s, and oftentimes we're getting married and we're raising children, and, and our, our, our zealousness, our zeal is replaced by, by prudence. In other words, Paul said the man that's married has to care for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. A single man can go out and do anything he wants to do from the Lord, but biblically speaking, when you marry, you now have to consider your wife. When that wife and husband have kids, they have to consider their kids. But let me tell you what happens so often. We move into this imbalance and all of a sudden, we start labeling things under wisdom and prudence when actually all it is is faithlessness. We stop pressing into the Lord. We start relying on lesser things, our livestock. We start seeing, how can I take care of my livestock? And, and God calls, but I'm over here on the other side of Jordan. I've got something for you over here. And we say, yeah, but Lord, where, where you left me last is a great place. I'm loving it over here. Let the other people go over there. But right here, I'm digging this right now. Let me tell you what God said in Deuteronomy 12.10. I don't know if this will be up on the screen. I don't think it will. When God was preparing his people to go into Canaan, listen to the words he chose. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you to inherit, he will give you rest from your enemies, you will live in safety, and you will then be in the place that your Lord, your God, will choose. Deuteronomy 12.10. So here's the thing. Ultimately, this for them boiled down to an issue of their own wisdom being uh, elevated and God's will being diminished. So, well, Jeff, what does that have to do with us? Only everything. Has everything to do with us. Because brothers and sisters, the will of God for us is not to pray a prayer to receive Jesus so that we can go to heaven when we die. That is an incomplete gospel. There are some portions of that that are tied into the gospel. That's not the gospel. But because we've grown up in the 20th and 21st century Western church, we have had it layered over and over again in our minds. It's almost presented like this. Oh, please accept Jesus. Please accept Jesus. He wants to save you so you can go to heaven when you die. And, and the amazing thing is, is when you make a careful study of the New Testament, that's not at all what the gospel is. The effect of the gospel is that you'll be with Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. But ultimately, the gospel is about God, not us. The gospel is about the glory of God, and God does not want us to wait until we get to heaven before he is glorified in and through our lives. So if we are going to glorify him, which is, again, we just sang it, you're glorious, you're glorious, you're glorious. Easy to sing, but a challenge to live. And so we're thinking about these things, and God said, for Reuben and Gad and the rest of the ten tribes, he said, my destiny for you is to cross over the Jordan and live in that land. And they said, yeah, but this land is good enough. You see how insidious the heart is? You say, well, Jeff, what does that look like today? Man, I don't have the time to go through the list of how that might look in my life or your life. But basically, it's very common that I, and I've been doing local church ministry since, really, since 1994, but vocationally since 1997. So 20 years I've worked in the local church ministry. I see this all the time. 
that what is sung and proclaimed and taught and amened on Sunday disappears Monday through Saturday in the lives of many Christians. Because they're slaving themselves and prioritizing and strategizing horizontally Monday through Saturday, and then they pop into a church on Sunday, they sing vertically, and then they go right back Monday to being horizontally. And so what do we want to do to break this cycle? Because again, this is not about condemnation. It is about a moment of enlightenment. Because it hits everything, our time, our energy, our finances, our ability. God's saying, I want you and all that you are and all that you have to cross over the Jordan and go fully into the place where I have ordained that your very best awaits you. And so the difference is this. Reuben and Gad represent the known. Reuben and Gad knew those tribes, if they settled right here, they know what they're getting. They've got livestock. They've got land for livestock. They may not get the land flowing with milk and honey, but that's okay. They don't really have a, they don't like milk and they don't like honey. They, they, like, they like beef and they've got livestock and they've got a lot of pastures. And this is, hey Moses, this is okay for us. More space for y'all. If y'all just go on, we'll applaud you. We want you to go over there and win it. But, but we don't really want to go. How about not making us cross the Jordan? How about not expecting us to press into God's best? How about not asking us to go all the way with the Lord, just like the rest of y'all are going to do? Y'all with me? Okay, so let's get back to the text then. Go into verses 6 and 7 with me because Moses, how many of you know don't mess with Moses, right? Do not mess with Moses. And, and he was kind of nice for Moses in this one, but it's a, question, a question of integrity is exposed in verses 6 and 7. Here's the authoritative verse. Moses said to the people of Gad, and to the people of Reuben. So everything that's about to come comes from Brother Mo, and you do not want to mess with Moses. Moses was the one who had face-to-face meetings with the Father. Moses is the one who, to whom the law was given. Moses was the one who stood in the court of Pharaoh. Moses is the one who facilitated the ten plagues upon Egypt that led to the deliverance. Moses was the one who held out the staff and split the Red Sea and the Israelites walked on dry land. Moses was the one who shepherded them for four decades in the wilderness. And Moses was the one who was speaking to them now right before they're crossing into the promised land. He's speaking to them with that same authority that God had entrusted to him, and Moses had to give an answer to the unwise request of Reuben and Gad when they said, please don't make us go all the way in God's will. And so that's the authoritative voice. But what does this voice say? He actually doesn't say something at first. He asks a valid question. Here's the valid question in verse number six. Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? You feel that? Um, I I try my very best never to cultivate an atmosphere or a culture of guilt. But I'm going to give you something here. There is room for conviction. And you can't experience biblical conviction without sensing some level of guilt. Where, where do we sense it in this verse? Moses is talking to two groups. Let's just let them represent two out of 12 people. He's saying to two of these, so your plan to take care of yourself, your plan to stop short of going along with the rest of us, 
your, your desire to not fight for the fullness of the inheritance that God's promised us. You think that's okay, but I'm going to put it back to you. They ask a question. He answers it with a question. He says, so you're going to sit here while everybody else pours it out on the battlefield to secure the land. Now, let me just ask you logically, does that sound fair? Y'all are afraid to answer. Does it sound righteous? I mean, let me, let me bring it to home. What if everybody in your household, let's just say you're a family of five, and let's say four of the people in the household are on board to keep that household going, and there's chores that need to be done, and there's bills that need to be paid, and there's maintenance that needs to be done, and there's, there's order that needs to take place, and everybody's got a role, and everybody's got a function. Mom or dad or head of household, whoever you might be, when, when one person refuses to do their part, do you just smile and pretend everything's going great? and it's totally fine. Do you say to the other members of the household, well, this one doesn't really want to do it because they're happy where they are right now, so let's all do more. Let's all do extra, because look at them. They're so happy. We just want them to be blessed. We want them to be content. Look at them. Do you see that? Do you see that smile on her face or his face? I'm being silly here, but the point being is we see it in our homes. We see it when it's painted as a um, kind of an illustration of everybody carrying their own weight or having a fair piece of the load. But I don't know that we see it in the kingdom like we should. Because the fact of the matter is, not everybody that benefits from the kingdom invests in the kingdom. And I'm going to even bring it home closer. This is where it might be an opportunity to be convicted. Not everybody who reaps from a local church family sows into that family whether it be time, effort, finances, whatever. That's why we have a covenant. We're a covenant community. We don't police it. We don't come around banging on your door. We, we, we just trust that when you entered into a covenant with us and with the Lord, and I entered into it with you and the Lord, that we're just people of integrity. We're going to do what we say. And yet sometimes we're tempted to be like Reuben and like Gad, and we say, Lord, those crazy zealots down there at Newbridge, they are going after you. But Lord, I'm sure it's okay with you if I just show up on Sunday, I lift my hands in praise, I get my worship on, and then I leave. And I would just answer, maybe even with the authority of Moses, he's not okay with that. He's not. Moses just asks it very simply. It's almost in the tone of, Hey, do you really think it's reasonable that everybody else should pour out sacrifice? Even, by the way, some of those people would die when they went over and crossed over into the, over the Jordan into the land. Moses saying, so you think it's okay for y'all to sit here on the east side of Jordan when God's will is on the west side of Jordan and everybody else is wanting to do what God wants, but you're saying this works for you. Well, Moses actually is so gracious because he tells them what damage this could do. Verse 7, here's the possible ripple effect of what they're asking. He says, why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? See, Moses was having flashbacks. Moses remembered Numbers 13 and 14 when they were 40 years earlier, right on the edge of going into the promised land, and they sent the spies into the land and 10 of those committee heads came back and said, I don't think we can do it because the giants are too big and the walls are too thick. And within just a short amount of time, 10 people who didn't believe God would do what he said he would do had so soured the congregation that the, the, the end effect of it was 40 years of Israel wandering in the wilderness until all of the unbelief died off. And Moses is right up there. I mean, he's stepping up, he, he's stepping up to the plate in the ninth inning for him. And he's right there at the Jordan. 
and he's hearing a repeat performance of what he heard 40 years earlier, you got a group of people that don't want to cross into the land that God had given them. And so Moses, he doesn't rail on them. He says, hey, the attitude you're expressing, the actions you are manifesting are very discouraging. Moses told those that presumed to stay on the borderlands that they were a discouragement to those who wanted to go fully into God's will. You know, oftentimes because we're, we're independent, we're Westerners, we're Americans, we think uh, so individualistically. And we, we fail to really grasp the concept that is clear in other parts of the world. I love going to Africa because the, the, the sense of community in Africa is just intense. You, you go to the, the Far East and places like China. You, I, our, our friend Dave Farmer is overseas right now in a country that I won't name, and he's ministering the gospel over there, and they are training up these girls that have been rescued for brothels, these little girls through Crisis Rescue International. And, and they, they took the girl, the girls are out of the brothels into these homes being established in believing homes. And Dave posted a picture, I think it was this morning, that they took the girls shopping. And they said, every girl gets two outfits. They never get any anything. They've been, they've been robbed their whole life. And so crisis rescue and those that support crisis rescue finance an ability to take these girls shopping. Every girl gets two outfits, but she only gets to keep one. Why? Because they are training them that you are not an individual standalone. Take your outfit, wear it, enjoy it. But then they take these girls into the villages to the poorest of the poor, and those girls get to give away the other outfit. And the, the statement that's being made is we are not to keep what we've been given. We're not to clutch what we've been entrusted with. We are to rejoice that God has blessed us, but we are to intentionally look to others and bless them with those things with which we've been blessed, our resources, our time, our money, our efforts, our abilities. And so Moses says, I want you to press in all the way and don't discourage the people who are going into the land that the Lord has given. Look in verses 10 and 11. So the people get humbled. Moses does give them a little of their own history. He's referring to what I referred to earlier in verses 10 and 11 when he says, the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. Now the Lord swore saying, surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob because they have not wholly followed me. Just pause briefly for a minute here with me. So Moses is saying, you guys are right on the edge of making a decision that is not only going to mess you up, but it has the potential to mess everybody up. And I want to remind you, Gad and Reuben, that the last time this kind of scene played out, God got mad. I know some of you theologians don't like that kind of terminology, but I forgive you. God got mad. God was angry at their unbelief. God was angry at their refusal to go all the way and trust him. God was angry that they would rather cling to their, their known wilderness than to press into the promised land where there were many unknowns. And so Moses tells them that God was angry the last time this happened. Picture, I mean, you got to have a little compassion for Reuben and Gad. I don't think, personally, I don't think that these guys were just mercenary. I just think that they had come off a fresh victory. They had. I mean, they had just won their first military battles. And they had been blessed on the back end of that. 
And so they had experienced some of the goodness of God. They're not God-haters. They had experienced, they believed in God. They loved the Lord. That They had experienced his hand of blessing. He had prospered them through the livestock. And they're just thinking, man, let's just settle down here. This is, this is great. And, and what they weren't seeing is what Moses is addressing. They go into Moses, Moses, we've, we've got this great idea. Have you ever brought one of your great ideas before the Lord? Have you ever had that experience? Lord, I have got something I know you're going to love. Uh, let me tell you what you don't know, Father. And, and then you presume to put out before the Lord your great plan. And in one way or another, you know, God just says, no, child. No, 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 no. And you get shot blocked. Boom. <laughs> Y'all have got to lighten up this morning, man. I can't tell if you're asleep or afraid to say anything because you think I'm setting you up. The point being is this, is, is that the, the, the Lord's shot blocked Reuben and Gad and just said, uh-uh, that's, that's not going to happen. See, friends, we have to, we have to humble ourselves. And, and frankly, I think that a lot of the times we presume that because things are outwardly good, we got, we got decent livestock going on. I just checked my portfolio. Uh, the sheep are up five. The, the calves are up 90% since last month. And listen, there's, there's an expect. We got 14 that are, are pregnant. And so there's, there's, there's growth that's coming. And, and, and we statistically gauge where we are with the Lord by how we're doing outwardly. Um, so Moses tells them, Hey, the way you're thinking actually gets people in trouble with the Lord. Matter of fact, I, I think this verse will be up there. Numbers 32, earlier in this chapter, I didn't, or later in this chapter. Look at what Moses says. He gets intense with him. And he says to Reuben and Gad, You've ri risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase, increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will abandon them in the wilderness and you'll destroy all this people. That's where Moses really starts sounding a lot like Moses. Moses is saying, hey, remember your daddies? Back there in Numbers 13, that's where we would find them. Remember your daddies 40 years ago? Hey, you guys have risen up and you're displaying the same kind of sinful attitude that they were. And if you go through with this the way you're thinking right now, it could cost everybody the victory that God has. So Moses is being a good leader. He, he's, he's explaining where they're thinking poorly. He's telling them the ramifications of their, their inappropriate worldview or their inappropriate view of what God's doing in their life. And he's also telling them the consequences that are going to befall them and their children. As, as I'm about to close this out here in the next few minutes, I want to tell you a lot of what I'm saying to do may not hit you right where you are, but I hope you'll think of your kids and your grandkids because you're going to see something in a few moments here that, that will give you pause to think about how you're living today because you're setting the table that your grandkids are going to eat at. And so look with me down in verse number 12. Now, I do like this. This will encourage some of you that are faithful servants. The heroes get elevated. Uh, he said in verse 10, 11, talked about all the bad guys that never believed God, but he said, but nobody except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, they followed the Lord. They wholly followed the Lord. And so Moses is saying, everybody died in the wilderness that was 20 years old and upward, except for Caleb and Joshua, because these two fellows knew how to follow the Lord no matter what. And I love the fact that um, it's what we did this morning. I think it's entirely appropriate for us to take time on occasion to say, here's some people among you that are doing it well. Here's some people that are often unnoticed. Here's some people, by the way, most of the servants here at this assembly, you'll never notice them. 
Um, you, you might if you're going to pick up kids, drop off kids, but I'm going to tell you, a lot of the people that serve here, the majority of them, prefer to serve incognito. They don't want a lot of accolades. They don't want a lot of attention. They're not doing it for, for man-pleasing or trying to make a name for themselves as Captain you know, Christian or uh, you know, Superwoman or whatever. They're, 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 they're absolutely saying, I want to do this because I can do this. It helps the big picture. I want to do it for the Lord. And so that they do it. And just as J uh, Caleb and Joshua were doing it in their day, Moses takes time and he says, these guys, they're of a different spirit than those who did not believe. So we get down to the last verses this morning. Because they still haven't had their question answered, believe it or not. Moses said, here's what happens if you keep going like the way you're currently seeming to go. So they give an oath. Reuben and Gad give an oath. An oath to follow through as promised. Let me read several verses. In verse number 16, Reuben and Gad come near to Moses and they say, Here's what we're going to do. We'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, our children. But we will take up arms ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified city because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. Verse 19. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. So Moses said to them, If you will do this, if you will take up arms to go before the Lord uh, for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, and after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. This is tricky. Did God change his mind for Reuben and Gad? Did God say, oh, okay, well, this, this isn't my best for you. You're right. This is my best for you. Did God change his mind? Of course not. But God allowed them to receive all that they wanted. They didn't want enough from God. That's the point. The point is, they found their little manageable parcel from the Lord. And God said, I actually want to take you a little further and expand it. And they said, this will do. And so they found what they could manage with the Lord. It gave them a good conscience. It, they, they also said, we'll go over and fight. Yeah, we'll, we'll go over and fight. That makes no sense to me. I mean, listen, when they're going over to fight, they are fighting massive warrior enemies. They're laying their lives on the line for others to inherit what they themselves don't want to inherit. What? There is a Greek word for that. It's stupid. That's just dumb. The whole point was that they loved this land, but God had a better land for them, but they, they didn't want to leave what they, they really fell in love with first. They didn't want to risk it. Over here on this side of the Jordan is what they know, what they can handle, what they can control, what they can manage. And so over here is a bunch of unknown and a bunch of fighting. It took seven years of war to subdue the land on the west side of the Jordan River. Seven years. 
And so seven years of enemies. So they said, I tell you what, we'll send our men over. Let us build some places for our our wives and our children to to stay. And we'll get that built over here. But then we'll go on and we'll be first in the line. And by the way, Reuben and Gad were. When they crossed over Jordan, after the the, when the priest uh, uh, set up the the stones and the the ark went into the river and the, uh, the water stopped, Reuben and Gad went before Israel. So they were the first ones to go over into the enemy land. But let me give you something here. Their desire to dictate what they wanted from God actually shortchanged themselves. And it always does. They could not, their faith was not large enough to believe that God would bless them far beyond whatever it cost them. So in other words, they on some level said, this is good enough. They had already fought to get where they were, and they just settled down in the first place that felt good after their most recent victory. A lot of Christians do that. A lot of believers do that. They assume that the place that's been blessing them for a little bit is the place where they're supposed to stay forever. I'm not even talking geography here. I'm talking about where you are in life, your station in life. And say, well, I've always been this. I've always done it this way. I've always believed this. I've always thought this. And this is where, this is where me and God are. And God is, is, is calling people out of that. I, I, I call it a comfort zone, but it's, it's deeper than just being a comfort zone. But you all know what I mean by comfort zone. It's a place where they're cozy with the Lord. It doesn't stretch them. It doesn't, it doesn't challenge them. It doesn't cause them to go to a higher level of sacrifice and therefore result in a higher level of reward. It's just what they know. It's what they understand. It's what they have done. It's what they're good at. It's what they can predict, and they they can control and manage it. And that becomes the little two-by-two box where they interact with God. And all that God would have them to do is just say, why don't you just... Come over this river with me. Why don't you just cross over and press into the unknown? It's unknown to you, child, but it's fully known to me. And this is actually where I want you. I'm going to make a couple of uh, statements here. Some of you have a life that you haven't lived yet because you haven't pressed in long enough. You stop pressing in. You pressed in in zeal, but it got resisted on some level. And you said, okay, yep, I'll just stay on this side of the Jordan. And God is still saying, no, actually, my destiny for you is still through this crossing. You will have to cross. I'm going to do something, and you're going to cross, and there is something awaiting you over here. Now, friends, this isn't a rah-rah speech. I I am telling you prophetically that some of you are not living the full life that God has always had for you. And you might be tempted to think, well, he's sovereign, isn't he? If he wants to give me that life, uh, he'll give me that life. My friend, your theology is jacked up if you think that way. Your theology is so messed up if you think that God will sovereignly do everything for you to give you everything he wants for you. My friends, I'm going to tell you, does God not want all people to be saved? Are they all saved? No. Why? Because God does not always enforce his will upon people. He meets them at the point of their faith, and he will leave them at the point of their non-faith. And so when it comes to us as believers, I want you to know that there is so much more for you out there. And you've probably got 10 times more voices telling you why you can't do it than the voices that are telling you you can and you should and you must. And what it takes is it takes a brokenness within that says, God, you are too glorious and too good for this to be it. 
Too, too awesome for this to be all I'll ever know of you on earth. Lord, we're, we're, we're singing songs about your power and your wonder-working power, but we ain't seeing no wonders being worked. Lord, we're, we're talking about revival in the land and being raised up for a regional beachhead in our area, but Lord, I, I don't see the effects of that. And so what it does is it presses us. It presses us. We get into this olive press. How many of you know that the anointing oil used in the Old Testament only came about because God would put an olive in a press? So when oil's going to come out of something, the Lord's going to put it in a pressurized moment, and he's going to bring that oil out of it. And yet we'll do everything we can to avoid the press. And God's saying, I'm in the press. Get in the press with me. Get yourself up in this press by faith. And so often, and this is, this is just where we are. And I'm, I'm, listen, I promise you, I'm not being critical. I'm being exhortive tonight, today. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you, I'm, I'm combating the stronghold of excuses in our lives. I'm combating, tearing down these imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of who he is. And it doesn't matter if you're 95 in this place or you're 15 in this place. God is looking for some people that are standing on the banks of Jordan with Reuben and Gad's territory behind them. And they're saying, Reuben and Gad, they did what they did best for me. My destiny's on the other side of this river. My God has something great for me over there. I know there's war. I know there's battle. I know there's going to be challenges over there. But my God has something for me over there. Some of that, friends, is, is on the back end of you selling out. You've got to sell out. I, I can say the words, but I cannot affect that change in anybody's heart. There has to come a place where you literally take a blank sheet of paper and you sign your name on the bottom. And by faith, you present it to the Lord and say, you fill in the details. My signature's on it. I trust you. You have to come to those places in life. Otherwise... On some level, in any level that we're still in control, and we're still reasoning, we're still excusing. I mean, the, what drove the desire of Reuben and Gad was their money. It was their material wealth. In the Hebrew, in verse number one of this chapter, in the Hebrew, the first word is livestock. It's the first word. The emphasis was on what they had, and what they had prevented them from getting what God wanted for them. So, well, Jeff, what do we do? You have to release what you have. I, listen, I know this doesn't sound like some squeaky, oily preacher from Houston telling you everything's great. <laughs> because, friends, listen, here, here's my passion. My passion is this, that God would be glorified in our lives. My passion is for His glory. I've got my tw almost 12-year-old on the front row, and I fail as a dad if his life doesn't glorify Jesus or if I don't set him up to glorify Jesus with his life. I fail as a pastor if we're an average church. I fail. I stand before the Lord, and I, I, I promise you, if I'll count it a failure for pastoring an average church decade after decade, I can promise you, if I know it's a failure, he'll know it's a failure. Because average ministries are a dime a dozen, and average ministries don't bring glory to God. But when Christians will get a hold of the reality of who God is and what he has for them, Remember, on our end, it's all about his glory, and it is on his end too. That's the ultimate end game. God is all about his glory, but that's not all he's about. He actually loves you. 
He actually rejoices over you. You're not some pawn on a, on a chessboard of his in, in the celestial reign. My friends, God loves you. You're important to him, and he knows that your best and your pleasure and your joy and all that he has for you awaits you only as you follow him across the Jordan and into the place of blessing, and that's an act of faith. When they approached the Jordan River, and I'm done with my notes, when they approached the Jordan River, they had already, their, their fathers had seen the same thing with the Red Sea. They can't get across it. They can't get across it. So Moses was instructed to send the ark of the Lord before them. And the priest stood in the Jordan, and the presence of God stopped what could hurt them on either side, and the people walked through, and they crossed over into the land of destiny, and then they fought to subdue it. So today, as I'm closing, here's where some, all of us are. One, one, you're in one of these places. You're either in Egypt, and you're still under the crack of Pharaoh's whip because you've never been set free by the blood of Jesus. I'm going to tell you something today. Jesus has broken Satan's authority. He has crushed the authority of sin and death and hell against you, and you can walk out free today if you will trust him. If you want to, you can be saved this morning. You can be set free. I'm talking about forgiven, set free, filled with the Holy Spirit, owned and dispatched into your pathway of destiny that God will... It can start this morning for some of you. Some of you are out of Egypt, but you're in the wilderness. Your, your life is about murmuring, complaining, and eating sand. You're, you're sucking sand every day long. And, and that's it. You're scorched, you're withered, you're burned out, you're just, you're a desert dweller. And God's saying, um, if you'll just trust me, I'll bring you out of this circular way of living and I'll bring you to a place of a crossing. Some of you are, listen, I'm, I'm not being an accusatory, I'm just being observant. Some of you are, are, are you've been living a long time in Reuben Gad's world. You found something that worked for you a while back. You're not anti-God. You're, you love the Lord. You just don't trust him enough. And that's why sometimes in certain lives like that, he just starts putting an omnipotent pinky finger on some of those things you trust, and they shake, and all of a sudden you're not so happy with the Lord. Come out of your wrong side of the Jordan life. Say, so Jeff, how do I do that? I've already told you. There has to be a complete surrender of everything you are and everything you have. I don't mind telling you that. Write the word lordship. Listen, he's either Lord or he's not. And if he's not, why are we here today? I mean, good night. We could be getting a keg and getting ready for the NBA finals tonight. If, the, if he's not Lord, eat, drink, and be merry, right? I'm not kidding. But he is Lord. He's Lord of all. And therefore, none of us should be intimidated when, when we're challenged by another Christian to surrender at all. It isn't hard to surrender what you've already surrendered. But if you're clutching it you're holding on to it because it's been working for you a long time you got one hand on your stuff and one hand raised in worship and then holding on to your stuff and, then, uh, 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 and, and then if you're really bold you'll set it down for a second uh, <clears throat> right you don't know what I'm talking about and then some of you are right on the banks of Jordan and you're saying Jeff if you will shut up and stop preaching I will cross the Jordan by faith today. I'll surrender it all. And some of you already have. You've crossed the Jordan. You're in the land of blessing. You're in the land of promise. And you're fighting hard for it. And that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. I'm just going to be done preaching. I'm going to ask our ministry team to come forward, our worship team to come forward. I don't want us to move on emotion this morning. I've purposefully 
not tried to end on a crescendo of ah this morning. I, I want us to be deliberate in these moments. But I believe that if anybody in this house is ready to move out of any of those four places where that are less than being in the plant, place of blessing, if you are ready to move into that place of God's plan for you, destiny, it's not an unbiblical word. We talk about predestination. The root word is the same word we get destiny from. It's God's plan, God's place for you. And it's really, 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 really good. And, and our heart says, yeah, but I want to know what I'm committing to. I want to know. You're committing to him. You're not, you're not primarily committing to a syllabi. You're, you're, not, you're not saying, Lord, let me have that. No, you're saying, I trust him. That's why my piece of paper is blank and my signature is in bold font because I really boldly trust him no matter what he writes on it. And I believe for some of you today that if you will act on that and then you have to fulfill that, you have to walk it out then today God will begin to rearrange some things. But I am asking this morning for you to come with a whole heart. I want our ministry team to intercede for you. We want to lay hands on you, not because we have something you don't have, but we want to come into agreement with you about what uh, the Lord has spoken this morning. And I think that this is, and it's, man, I'm just, I'm, I'm sensing so strongly that literally, literally, this can be a game-changing moment for some lives in here. I'm seeing people in their mid-30s and wrestling with this and knowing that they've got so many things pulling at them. But if you'll come and just say no to everything horizontal and say yes to him, he'll give you back the horizontal the way he wants to.